Welcome to the Word of Life AG podcast. What do you do when you're between an army and the ocean? Today, Pastor Tom is going to walk us through one of the most famous moments in the Bible, the parting of the Red Sea in the Old Testament book of Exodus. But first, if you want to view the full service, including worship, please head to our website at wordoflifeag.org. That's wordoflifeag.org. While there, you can also see what's coming up at the church or even check out some next steps. We're so glad you're getting caught up. So let's get right into today's message. Pastor Tom has titled Exodus Between an Army and the Ocean. Glad you're here. Glad you're able to be a part of service. Um, Don't rush to leave church today. Um, Church does not end when service finishes. Um, The lobby out there, that is just as much a part of fellowship and church and building community, Um, and it's a vital part of being the church. So please don't feel the need to have to rush out of here. The Super Bowl party will be there 20 minutes um, after we're done with service. And so please don't feel the need to rush out of there. And even uh, we have some new games. I'm just going to say, if you're the competitive type of person, today's your day to prove to someone you are better than them by playing one of the games that we have. So, sound like a plan? Alrighty, we are going to be having communion um, at, towards the end of service. So if you don't have your communion elements right now, if you just want to put a hand up, one of the ushers will gladly get that to you. And when Jesus first led the 12 disciples in communion, like we're going to be doing at the end of service, he initiated this as a sacrament that hundreds of millions and possibly even billions of Christians have participated in. And when Jesus first initiated this and he first taught the disciples, he connected it directly to the Passover meal that Jewish people celebrated for 1,400 years before he was born and is still celebrated today in an annual festival. And the Passover meal, it remembers the night that the Israelites escaped Egypt and began their journey towards the Promised Land. And today we're going to walk through the account in the book of Exodus about the parting of the Red Sea. And this is one of the most famous moments in all of the Bible. And if I were going to rank the most important and most consequential moments in the Bible, I would definitely say the death and resurrection of Jesus is at the top of the list. I also think we could make the case that the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit coming and filling the believers and launching the church should take the second spot. And I think that this moment, the parting of the Red Sea, is a strong candidate for that third place on the list of being the most important and consequential moments of the Bible. The parting of the Red Sea is often described as the centerpiece moment of the Old Testament. It's the key moment that helped define God's people as a freed people that live with the active promises of God and with the unmatched power of the Lord. It's mentioned or referenced dozens of times throughout the Bible as a definitive display of God's unique power and His commitment to His people. It also shows His faithfulness to fulfill His promises. While the New Testament accounts of the death and resurrection of Jesus and the launch of the church on the day of Pentecost, they may have greater consequence and importance, but this is certainly the most significant moment in the whole Old Testament when the Israelites walked through the Red Sea. And oftentimes when we read a narrative account from the Bible, in our attempts to try and discover the principles and try and find understanding that will help us, we put ourselves in the story. We imagine what it would be like and what we can learn from that. So, for instance, we'll read something like David and Goliath, and what we'll take from that is we should be bold against the odds. We'll read about Daniel in the lion's den, and we'll take from that that we should do the right thing and trust God with the outcome. 
With Job, we'll read the, the book of Job and conclude that we shouldn't give up during life's worst moments. And typically, as we identify with a story, we put ourselves in the shoes of the hero. But for today, we're going to look at the story, the historical account of the parting of the Red Sea. And as we try to place ourselves in the story to try and glean something from this, I, I think it will be helpful not to see ourselves as Moses, the hero of the story, but instead to see how we relate to the millions of people that Moses led out of slavery. How do we identify with the reaction and attitude of the Israelites? What can we learn about ourselves and our life of faith by comparing ourselves not with Moses, the hero, but with the nation that he was leading? And if you know the story, you'll know that the nation of Israel, they didn't always get it right just like we don't. And it means that there's some helpful things for us here. A quick summary to get us up to speed with the story. Abraham, he received a, a series of promises from God that he was going to make Abraham's descendants a great nation. A nation that's blessed and in a unique and special relationship with him. Fast forward to Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph, and he becomes second in command of all of Egypt. Egypt was the most powerful nation in the known world at the time, and it was a miracle that a young man from an obscure place was promoted to being one of the most powerful men in history. Then the whole family, all of Abraham's descendants that were holding on to the promises that God had made decades earlier, they moved to Egypt, and because of Joseph's positions, they had a sense of respectability and even an affluence. But this wouldn't last long. In the book of Exodus, chapter 1, in time, Joseph and all his brothers died, ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to his people, Look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from our country. So the Egyptians made the Israelites slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Pithom and Ramesses as supply centers for the king. And the horrors of slavery would last for 400 years. In time, God chose Moses to rise up and lead a nation of slaves out of slavery. Some estimated that it was as many as three million people. The Pharaoh didn't want to let the slaves go. He was benefiting from the slave labor. So he wanted to keep them enslaved and to help him with his various building projects. To bring Pharaoh to the point where he would let the slaves go, God sent a series of plagues to the nation of Egypt. In essence, these plagues, they turned the most powerful nation in the world upside down. The river Nile turned to blood. There were swarms of flies. The land was covered with frogs. And a number of other signs that we usually refer to as the ten plagues, they wrecked havoc on the nation. And the final plague was the death of the firstborn sons. Despite all the warnings, despite all the chances to let God's people go and let them take their freedom, the Pharaoh would not let them go. And the final plague, the death of the firstborn sons, was so devastating that Pharaoh finally relented and decreed that God's people could go. The nation of slaves, after 400 grueling years, the Israelites could go free. And that's where we're going to pick up the story in Exodus 13, starting in verse 17. When Pharaoh finally let the people go, God did not lead them along the main road that runs through the Philistine territory, even though that was the shortest route to the promised land. God said, if the people are faced with a battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led them in a roundabout way through the wilderness towards the Red Sea. 
Thus, the Israelites left Egypt like an army ready for battle. Now, what we just read is that there was a shortcut to get to their destination. But God knew that they weren't ready for the fight that would inevitably happen if they went the quickest way, so he took them on a longer route. Now, there's something very comforting about this, that God would do something that may be confusing in our lives, even something that may cause us to question whether this is indeed the right thing to do. But God is fully aware of our shortcomings and deficiencies and inabilities. So here we see him working in a way to counterbalance our weaknesses. God led them towards the Red Sea so he could fight for them because he knew that if they had to fight for themselves, it wouldn't end well. Carrying on in verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear to do this. He said, God will certainly come to help you, and when he does, you must take my bones with you from this place. Now, this is an interesting, and I would even say strange detail to include in the account of what's happening. My only conclusion is that this is a reminder of the heritage of the Israelites. These are Abraham's descendants. Joseph was the great-grandson of Abraham who went to Egypt as a slave and became second in command. And these bones were a connection to the book of Genesis, the stories of creation and sin and Noah and Jacob and all the other stories that the Israelites knew well. These bones, Joseph's bones, as strange as it is to us 21st century Americans, they were a connection to the promises of God that these slaves have been holding onto for 400 years. Verse 20, the Israelites left Succoth and went to Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went ahead of them. He guided them during the day with a pillar of cloud, and he provided light at night with a pillar of fire. This allowed them to travel by day or by night. And the Lord did not remove the pillar of cloud or pillar of fire from its place in front of the people. And this is the first time in the book of Exodus that the pillar of cloud of fire appears. This is how God would lead the Israelites for the next 40 years as they wandered the desert. When the pillar moved, they packed up their tents and followed. When it stayed somewhere, they stayed somewhere too. Now on uh, Instagram, I follow a page, I believe it's called the Bible AI something, AI images. There's a few different pages that do this. But using AI image technology, they will try to um, recreate biblical images. The biblical images of the pillar of cloud of fire and smoke is fantastic. I mean, it is truly remarkable. So just to buy the by, it's worth looking up. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then the Lord gave these instructions to Moses. Order the Israelites to turn back and camp by Piha-Hiroth. If you can pronounce it better, that's good for you. Between Migdol and the sea. I should just say it's the British pronunciation. I can get away with anything. Camp there along the shore by Baal Sephon. Then Pharaoh will think the Israelites are confused. They are trapped in the wilderness. And once again, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will chase after you. I have planned this in order to display my glory through Pharaoh and his whole army. After this, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites camped there as they were told. When word reached the king of Egypt that the Israelites had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. What have we done letting all these Israelite slaves get away, they asked. Now, it's not surprising that Pharaoh has a change of mind. The slave labor that has just left Egypt is going to cause him problems and slow down his plans. Verse 6, so Pharaoh harnessed his chariot and called up his troops. He took with him 600 of Egypt's best chariots, along with the rest of the chariots of Egypt, each with its commander. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So he chased after the people of Israel who left with their fists raised in defiance. The Egyptians chased after them with all the forces in Pharaoh's army, all his horses and chariots, his charioteers and his troops. 
The Egyptians caught up with the people of Israel as they were camped out beside the shore near Pihahiroth, across from Baal Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and panicked when they saw the Egyptians overtaking them. They cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. And it's clear to see from here that fear has overtaken them. They looked at the present reality and they were panicked. And I would even say, of course they were panicked. They had an army behind them and in front of them was an ocean. And this terrified nation of slaves was in a completely new territory. And we have often been there ourselves. Each and every one of us can identify with the Israelites at this moment with an army behind them and an ocean in front of them. And they're in a situation that is flat out impossible. The shape and size of the army might be different. The severity and unknown danger of the ocean may change. But we know this feeling of being panicked and unnerved. Life has a way of bringing about circumstances and moments of panic, and I'm certain that there's no one here who doesn't understand the fear of being boxed in with no obvious way out. There's an army chasing them. There's an ocean in front of them. Where is the hope supposed to come from? Where is this breakthrough? Where is this miracle going to come from? Of course they're turning to Moses and saying, how dare you? Of course they turned to Moses and said, what have we done? This is a huge mistake. We could have been back being slaves. At least we were alive. Of course they're panicked. And the question that I have is, what do you do when you're between an army and an ocean? What do you do when you're between an army and an ocean? And we're going to walk through the rest of the chapter and see what happened and then consider what it means for us today as New Testament believers. But the first thing I put to you is, what do you do when you're between an army and the ocean? Firstly, have trust. Have trust. Remain confident and calm. Following the pillar of cloud and fire took trust, and it's about to go up a few gears. Carrying on in verse 13. But Moses told the people, the people who are freaking out, don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. Have trust. Have trust. Find confidence. Find calm. Have trust. There are, of course, a lot of things we put our trust in. Right now, you are trusting that the pew you are sitting on is not going to collapse beneath you. I'm just going to pause for a moment to see if the Lord is going to do a great display of His wonder and power. Not today. We trust the alarm clocks on our phones. We trust the wooden beams in our houses. We trust the banks to take care of our money. We trust other drivers are going to obey the rules of the road. And God has a track record we can trust. For the Israelites at this point in their history, they had seen the plagues in Egypt. They had seen the Passover when their firstborn sons were spared. Moses had been a part of miracles. They had good reasons to trust God. And when it's time to exercise trust, stay calm and be confident. Second thing, what to do when you're between an army and an ocean. Second thing, know the timing. There's a time to wait and there's a time to move. 
In verse 15, then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to get moving. Pick up your staff and raise your hand over the sea. Divide the waters so the Israelites can walk through the middle of the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they will charge in after the Israelites. My great glory will be displayed through Pharaoh and his troops, his chariots and his charioteers. When my glory is displayed through them, all Egypt will see my glory and know that I am the Lord. Now this group of people that were about to go through an ocean, they had spent 400 years waiting, suffering, and now it's time to get moving. There's a time to slow down and not hastily rush. Abraham and Sarah learned this lesson. But when it's time to move, get going. I think it's a personality trait to be inclined towards waiting or an inclination towards moving. The question over which is better than the other, the answer is, of course, they're both right. When it's time to move, we need to listen to the people who are inclined to wait. And we need to listen to the people who are inclined to encourage us in the right timing. When it's time to move, we need to listen to the people who are inclined to move and get going. Those are the voices we need to listen to. And of course, it's all vice versa. We need to listen to those right voices in our lives to be able to make sure that we are sensing the right timing. In the book of Proverbs, plans go wrong for lack of advice. Many advisors bring success. We're designed and called to live life as a community. Having people around you that you trust, people that have a different disposition or way of processing than you do. By having some trusted voices, you'll start to have confidence with the timing. If you're prone to wait, weigh up the advice of those who are telling you to move. For those of us with itchy feet, listen to people who you know love you and care about your future. And if they're telling you to slow down, take it seriously. But the second thing is know the timing. Thirdly, what to do when you're between an army and an ocean? Demonstrate courage. Demonstrate courage. The angel of the Lord, who had been leading the people of Israel, moved to the rear of the camp. The pillar of cloud also moved from the front and stood behind them. The cloud settled between the Egyptian and Israelite camps. As darkness fell, the cloud turned to fire, lighting up the night. But the Egyptians and Israelites did not approach each other all night. Then Moses raised his hand over the sea, and the Lord opened up a path through the water with a strong east wind. The wind blew all that night, turning the seabed into dry land. So the people of Israel walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground with walls of water on each side. Then the Egyptians, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and charioteers chased them into the middle of the sea. But just before dawn, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian army from the pillar of fire and cloud, and he threw their forces into total confusion. He twisted their chariot wheels, making their chariots difficult to drive. Let's get out of here, away from these Israelites. The Egyptians shouted, no, the Lord is fighting against Egypt. And the end of the story is, of course, a great victory. But the point I want to make here, and what I think is important for us is, no matter how you look at it, stepping out onto a dry seabed with two walls of water each side of you takes courage. Can you imagine the first person to take the step between the waves? You're trusting that they're not going to come smashing down at any moment. And the life of faith takes courage. It's fine now, but what if the wind dies down and the waves collapse on me and my loved ones? But I ask you, when has cowardice ever helped anything? When has cowardice ever helped anything? This life of faith, it is a challenge. There are moments where we have to exercise faith. There are lots of moments where exercising faith will take courage. It will be difficult. 
But when has being a coward ever helped anything? When has timidity ever made something better? The fourth thing I put to you, what do you do when you're between an army and an ocean? Fourthly, look ahead. Verse 26, when all the Israelites had reached the other side, the Lord said to Moses, raise your hand over the sea again. Then the waters will rush back and cover the Egyptians and their chariots and charioteers. So as the sun began to rise, Moses raised his hand over the sea, and the water rushed back into its usual place. The Egyptians tried to escape, but the Lord swept them into the sea. Then the waters returned and covered all the chariots and charioteers, the entire army of Pharaoh. Of all the Egyptians who had chased the Israelites into the sea, not a single one survived. Look ahead. Another way of saying it is let the past die. Let the past die. The, uh, so Megan and I, we have these three roommates, and they're three little angels, but they do forget their angels from time to time. And one of the things that just, uh, anyway, brings despair to the woodhouse is when they dig up an old argument. So for instance, it's probably six years ago now, one kid popped another kid's balloon and if ever there's an argument, if ever there's a disagreement, it could be about anything. I mean anything. And then it's a matter of time until someone says, yeah, well, what about that balloon you popped? It's like, oh, the balloon again, not the balloon again. We need to let the past die. It's done. It's over. We need to let the past die. In the book of Genesis, there's an account of God destroying two evil cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot, who was Abraham's nephew, he was told to escape with his family. And we can read this as Lot and his family are fleeing the city, but Lot's wife looked back as she was following behind him, and she turned into a pillar of salt. She looked back. Presumably, she was looking back longingly, regretting that she had to leave the city. She regretted that she had to go and leave and flee the city that was rotten with sin, because she still loved the city and she was going to be caught up in its destruction by looking back. It's a strong lesson. Don't look back. Don't forget the devastation of sin. Don't reminisce about the things of the past. Don't wish we could go back to what God has rescued us from. And at the Red Sea, God dramatically destroyed the past. The past slavery that they were trapped in, it died. Let the past die and don't try and resurrect it. In the book of Exodus, in, uh, in verse 27, as we just read, Moses raised his hand over the sea and the water rushed back into its usual place. The Egyptians tried to escape, but the Lord swept them into the sea. My friend, what are you leaving behind? What needs to die in your life? What has been keeping you in slavery? What has been oppressing you or devastating you? What needs to die? When you know what it is, leave it behind and don't look back. What do you do when you're between an ocean and uh, an army in the ocean? Number five, value freedom. Value freedom. Verse 29. But the people of Israel had walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground as the water stood up like a wall on both sides. That is how the Lord rescued Israel from the hand of the Egyptians that day. And the Israelites saw the bodies of the Egyptians washed up on the seashore. When the people of Israel saw the mighty hand that the Lord had unleashed against the Egyptians, they were filled with awe before him. 
They put their faith in the Lord and in his servant Moses. As they stepped onto the shore and they saw their enemies defeated, they took the first steps of freedom that they had ever taken. God had fulfilled his promise of freedom and he had done the impossible. He had made a way where there was no other way. He took them from panic and fear as they had an army behind them and an ocean in front of them and he brought them to freedom. And this newfound freedom they were experiencing, it wasn't cheap, it wasn't frivolous, and it was only possible because of God's mighty power. Sadly, so much of the rest of the Old Testament deals with how God's people would take for granted and underappreciate the freedom he had given them. This is one of the most deflating passages in the whole Bible in Exodus 16, a few chapters later. Then the whole community of Israel set up from Elam and journeyed into the wilderness of sin between Elam and Mount Sinai. They arrived there on the 15th day of the second month, one month after leaving the land of Egypt. There too, the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. But now you have brought us into the wilderness to starve us all to death. And the complaints began. This is one month after being a part of the greatest miracle the world had ever seen. Now there's a major sporting event happening this week. Tomorrow afternoon at three o'clock, Chelsea play Crystal Palace in London. But I understand there's a football game happening today too. Tonight, either the Chiefs or the 49ers are gonna be celebrating like crazy. And imagine, one month from now, they're complaining about how their team is the worst team in the NFL. Insane to imagine, but that's what we're dealing with here. An awful way I've seen this in action is uh, as a youth pastor. I'm a big believer in camps and retreats and overnight getaways. And if you just break away from so much of the crazy and the distractions and the headache of the world and you just sort of get somewhere away from all of it and you can focus on what matters. And I believe the Lord speaks. I believe he does great work in the lives of young people. I really do believe in this. And one of the awful things I would see as a youth pastor is that we'd go and there'd be kids that have all kinds of hang-ups and all kinds of issues and some really serious stuff that's going on, but this break away from normal life and get this somewhere where they can just sort of focus on what matters and not be distracted by all the world and all the crazy that's going on. I think just have some time with the Lord. God does amazing things. Amazing things. I believe in this. But the horrible thing and the horrible part of the story, and I'm, I hate having to admit that I've seen this over and over again, is that somehow between the final session we have together where lives have been changed, appear apparently forever, somewhere between that final meeting and the van on the way home, all of it's undone. One month later, what do you mean we saw the greatest miracle the world's ever seen? I've seen my own eyes youth students who have been absolutely rocked. Their lives have been transformed. They've gained a new perspective that they've never had on the world and life and faith and the Lord and all the right. They've never had that perspective before. And it's like, oh my gosh, this is true freedom. I want more and more of this. But somehow between camp and the van on the way home, it's like it never happened. It's this exact same principle at play. The past is difficult to leave behind especially when the future looks uncertain and daunting. The Israelites had a promise of a fertile land flowing with milk and honey, but all they could see was desert. The past misery can take on a different perspective once you're not feeling the pain that was very real at the time. Once you're the other side of pain, your retrospective view looks different. Unfortunately, this 
instance in the life of the Israelites, it started a pattern for the Hebrews that we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament. This account from Exodus, it should remind us of God's power and faithfulness, and it's important to keep coming back and remembering. This was some instruction from Exodus 13, before they crossed the ocean. And in the future, your children will ask you, what does all this mean? Then you will tell them, with the power of his mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, the place of slavery. As a church, we have Next Gen Ministry. Pastor Christie's doing a wonderful job. She's only been in the position for a few months and is doing fantastically well. Pastor Annie's uh, now a year in as our youth pastor is doing fantastically well. Um, our Next Gen Ministry is wonderful. Megan and I are extremely pleased with how it's all going. But moms, dads, parents, you are not a bystander in your kids' discipleship. In the future, your children will ask you, Parents, you have a responsibility and a weight and a joy and a privilege to let your kids know how God has been faithful in your life, how God has moved, the miraculous ways you've seen his hand, where you've seen his power at play, how he has been good to you, how he has been financially provided for you, how he's come through in health, healing, whatever it may be. Parents, you have a responsibility to tell this to your children. As a church, our kids' ministry and our youth ministry and our Christian school, we will work together and we will come and we will tell kids how amazing Jesus is. But my friends, that means you are a part of this with us. Parents, you have a responsibility to answer this call to when your children ask, what does all this mean when they come to you with questions of faith? Have an answer ready. Let them know how you have seen God be awesome and mighty and wonderful in your life. We need to remind ourselves and remind our children what to do when you're between an army and the ocean. Have trust. Know the timing. Demonstrate courage. Look ahead and value freedom. And just for fun, I also thought it was worth reminding ourselves what not to do when you're between an army and the ocean. What not to do? Led by doubt, misread the timing, show timidity, long for the past, or take freedom for granted. That is not how we're going to live our lives. Amen? Just yesterday, I was, um, normally on Saturday mornings, I spend a few hours getting ready for Sunday, just sort of finalizing my notes and going through things. And as I was kind of upstairs getting a cup of coffee before I ducked back down to the basement to get finished, Moses, um, my youngest son, he says to me, uh, Dad, what are you preaching on tomorrow? So I just looked at him and I said, I'm preaching on Moses. And he looks at me and he says, why are you telling the church about me? <laughs> I said, no, guy from the Bible. That is a completely true story. And Moses is indeed a, a biblical hero and but the book of Hebrews spends most of chapter 3 explaining how Jesus is greater than Moses. It's amazing how many parallels there are between Exodus and the freedom that Jesus promises. So in light of all we read and with all that as a backdrop and all we heard about the Exodus today, I want to consider together what it teaches us about Jesus and what he promises. So the parallels with Jesus and the Exodus, number one, slaves find freedom. Slaves find freedom. Slavery is evil and a disgrace in human history. It was very common in the ancient world, especially in the time of the New Testament. The apostles and New Testament writers, they repeatedly describe themselves as slaves. The New King James Version translates it as bond servants. Now, a bond servant was a special category of servant. It was someone who had earned their freedom, but instead of living as a free person, they willfully and without duress bound themselves to a master. They were free from a slavery, but they freely committed to serving somebody. 
And that's how the apostles describe themselves, that they have been set free from being a slave to sin, and now they choose freely and willingly to be a slave and servant to the good and merciful and kind master. They no longer suffer the horror and misery of serving sin, but now they found the joy and peace in serving the good and gracious Lord of Lords. They are not owned or indebted to sin, but they are accepted and duty-bound to the one who set them free. This is a thought that Paul expands upon in Romans 6, starting verse 16. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God, once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. Because of the weakness of your human nature, I'm using the illustration of slavery to help you understand this. Previously, you let yourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led ever deeper into sin. Now you must give yourselves to be slaves to righteous living so that you will become holy. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. And what was the result? You are now ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. But now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. What a verse. Parallels with Jesus in the Exodus. Number two, promises are made and kept. Promises are made and kept. Second Corinthians. For Jesus Christ, the Son of God, does not waver between yes and no. He is the one whom Silas, Timothy, and I preach to you. And as God's ultimate yes, he always does what he says. For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes and through Christ our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. The best definition of faith I've ever come across is that faith is believing in and committing to a promise. Faith is believing in and committing to a promise. If you made a list of all the promises you can find in the Bible, and then you made a second list of all the ways you have seen either in your life or in the lives of others, all the way that God has kept his promises, do you know what you would have? Two very long lists. God is in the business of making and keeping promises. All of God's promises in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. The third thing, parallels with Jesus in the Exodus, third thing, we escape judgment. We escape judgment. John 3, Jesus talking. For this is how we know God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. Just a month ago, we spent three weeks talking about heaven and in good conscience, I couldn't ignore the awful reality of hell. As a part of that message, I shared that God is perfect and his judgments are correct. Whenever I hear someone say, only God can judge me, I start to shudder. I once worked with someone who had only God can judge me tattooed on them and I'm like, oh, you sure you want to say that? 
with absolute unquestioned certainty, I would rather you judge me than God judge me. God's standards are way higher than human standards. And God will always get it correct. The good news is that my faith in Jesus means I won't have my sins and shortcomings and mistakes held against me. I have been forgiven. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. The Israelites escaped the Passover judgment by trusting in the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. And that's the same image that's used in the New Testament, that we trust in the blood, not of the Passover lamb, but in the blood of Jesus, the blood that was spilt on the cross. God's judgment is terrifying. It's terrifying because he won't get it wrong. But because Jesus died in my place, he took the judgment, he took the punishment. This is why the message of Jesus is the greatest news that anyone will ever hear. Those who place their faith and trust in him will escape judgment. Parallels with Jesus in the Exodus, number four, the challenge to take steps of faith. The challenge to take steps of faith. With two walls of water on either side, it was a true step of faith to walk through the ocean on dry ground. The pursuit of Jesus will have the challenge to take steps of faith. The challenge to leave the past behind. The challenge to trust God's promises when there's no obvious way to see how He is going to fulfill that promise. But remember, faith is believing in and committing to a promise. And that faith is going to involve taking bold steps. Parallels with Jesus in the Exodus number five. The opportunity to leave the past behind. The opportunity to leave the past behind. 2 Corinthians 5, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. It's gone. It's gone. It's over. It's done. It's gone. And a new life has begun. And all this is a gift from God. Every single one of us has things in their past that we want to be dead and buried. Oftentimes, something is dead, something is buried, but for some reason, we keep digging it up and acting like it's alive. It should be over with. It's something we've moved on from, it's something we've grown from, but instead, we keep giving it life. The ocean crashed down on the past that the Israelites left behind. By the ocean destroying Pharaoh and the army, it meant that the past was done with, the threat was gone, slavery was over. It was time to live beyond the past. It was time to embrace what was ahead. Please seek whatever help or counseling you may need. But my friends, the past is dead, it's buried, and let's leave it that way. Number six, parallels with Jesus in the Exodus. Number six, the importance of staying faithful. The importance of staying faithful. Matthew 24, Jesus talking again, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Who endures to the end will be saved. The rest of the book of Exodus, and I would even say the three books of Moses that were written following the Exodus, they all outline what it means to follow God in this newfound freedom. Living in freedom, it sounds easy, but it'll be challenged. There'll be moments that it's easier to give up or drift back to old ways. Every single one of us knows this. But a few thoughts about this. Following Jesus is a lifelong commitment. Another thought is that when you drift, get back on the path ASAP. And let's never forget that God is committed to helping us figure it all out. My friend, stay faithful. Parallels with Jesus and the Exodus. Seventh thing, we go from slavery to freedom. 
This isn't a nice sounding idea or some kind of catchy phrase. This is going from death to life. I had a friend of mine who uh, is not a believer. One Sunday in church, I heard a story that I found really inspiring about a heroin addict who'd been lost in addiction for such a long time, but they'd found faith in Jesus and had got free from their addiction, and they were now living a, a life where they're sort of you know, starting to reorganize their life, and things are going great for them. And I thought it was such a great story. I told my friend who did not share my faith in Jesus, and I told him about it. And he looked at me, and he sort of said, well, yeah, I mean, of course. That's someone that's desperate. Like, of course someone like that would go to church and try to find help. But what about the rest of us? All of us have the sense that something is missing. All of us understand when we lack peace or hope. All of us despair when we look at the injustice and devastation around us. It doesn't mean that we need to have this big dramatic desperation in our lives and be some kind of dramatic testimony. Every single person can look around and say something's not right. The spiritual slavery is universal. We're all searching for freedom and it won't be found in anything or anyone else. When Jesus called Matthew, he was wealthy, but it wasn't enough. When he called Peter, he was running a family business, but it wasn't enough. When he called Paul, Paul was a widely respected and admired teacher, but it wasn't enough. For Lydia, she was a wealthy businesswoman, wasn't enough. For the believers in Athens or Corinth or Ephesus, they had been worshiping idols of the Greek gods, but it wasn't enough. But Jesus and Jesus alone leads to freedom. This is not a theory, but it's honest to goodness freedom. I have friends who, before they found Jesus, were angry and aggressive, and some who even spent time in jail for assault. I know people who, before they followed Jesus, they stole, lied, cheated, and sometimes they got away with it. I know other people who have treated other people disgracefully. Many people who are lost in addiction who have now found freedom, and they have been set free. They've had their hearts softened and their minds transformed, and now they're kind and loving people. You have your own story of how God has changed your heart and mind so that you can go from slavery to freedom. Let's commit to never make the mistake that we see from the Exodus, uh, taking from granted of the gift and the miracle of freedom. Those parallels with Jesus and the Exodus. Slaves find freedom. Promises are made and kept. We escape judgment. The challenge to take steps of faith. The opportunity to leave the past behind. The importance of staying faithful and going from slavery to freedom. And how do we experience this? How does this stop being nice sounding ideas and become what we experience? When you're between an army and the ocean, have trust, know the timing, demonstrate courage, look ahead, and value freedom.